I'm Dan Schmidt. Thank you for joining us. Every Thursday, we drop a new episode of this podcast, whether you're listening to it on all the podcast platforms or you're watching it on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or wherever the hell else we're putting this thing. Sorry. I let <laughs> Put that it out sl- there. Let it slip out there. We have Tim Newman with us today from Analogics Outdoors, and we're going to be talking about all things deer and deer hunting. Welcome, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. So, you know, we were talking off the air here about, uh, so your your forte is uh, deer biology, um, you know, deer science, especially when it comes to food and nutrition. What I want to start with, we're going to talk a lot of today about, um, I always get that in there, about, it's my Canadian accent, I always say that. Um, we're going to talk about uh, soil and food plots and minerals. Um, but the first thing I want to ask you, Tim, because I'm relatively, I've been in this chair a very long time. I'm a relatively new food plot practitioner. Um, I've never really done wide scale plots. I started, I hunted a lot of my life on public land and then very, very small private parcels. But one thing that I find absolutely fascinating about uh, managing deer with food plots is soil. And the reason why is I am a vegetable gardener at heart. And I know what it takes to grow good kohlrabis and tomatoes and broccoli and all that kind of stuff. And there, there is definitely a science to it. But I want to start with the, the science of soil. Now, one thing that I don't, and I know I get this, the reason I'm asking, because I get this question a lot. Uh, there's guys on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook that will send me messages. And they'll say, you know, I've been doing this thing, but I really don't know yeah, we till the soil and we plant these seeds and some of it comes up and the deer eat it. We shoot deer and that's all great. But, you know, what... Now, if you're a farmer or you're really a, a serious person listening to this, this question is going to be easy for you, but I want Tim to explain it. What is the difference between, you know, turning soil with a plow or a disc or a tiller? or so, What are the applications for all those various uh, processes? So the thing with uh, doing any sort of tillage work, they, they each have their, their own specific tool. I mean, you, you imagine back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, it was always the moldboard plow. So you're basically taking sod that has grown for many years with a big thatch layer and just basically cutting it underneath the thatch and rolling it completely upside down so you're burying the grass, and then you've got just bare dirt on top of it. And then they would use a you know, disc, something to level that out a little bit to plant. But you're basically just taking the soil from the condition that it's in and breaking it up, adding some air to it, and allowing for the seed-to-soil contact to get a little bit better. Uh, but re- recent advancements in no-till technology has kind of opened a lot of people's eyes that that tillage portion is not mandatory. You know, it's 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 helpful to to make uh, a good clean weed free seed bed that looks nice after you till it, but you didn't kill any of the weed seeds that were down farther, and now they just came back up to the top. You just reinvigorated the seed bed. So I've been on both sides of the debate. You can grow a good food plot with tillage. You can grow a good food plot without tillage. Tillage is not mandatory. And so when you're doing the tillage, and, and a, a perfect example, I think for a preponderance of our listeners and viewers is that there's guys who there's a ton of guys that and gals that that get out there they get they either acquire a new property or they get permission or and it's it's uh, fallow and um, you're going in there 
and what you said, you you know, you turn that saw. I found it is like, well, you're exposing a gazillion dormant seeds. Yep. You're never going to kill all that stuff. Um, does it pay to do that, or should people nowadays be looking more at no-till? Yeah, I think it it really depends on how much time you have devoted to working on that plot. You know, you could do several rounds of tillage and herbicide management to impact the the seed population over a longer time frame, but it's going to take a lot of work. Whereas I, I don't have a lot of time on my plots as much as I can. I'm doing, you know, I'm mowing it as close as I can to the ground. I'm spraying herbicide to basically kill it, kill the weeds that are there. And then I'm just broadcasting seed on top of the thatch layer that I've created and waiting for a good heavy soaking rain. So when you're so, doing that, you're you're mostly talking smaller seeds, right? Yep. Uh, brassicas, yep. brassicas maybe clover? and clovers. Okay. Yep. And so th- would that be your recommendation then for somebody with no, not much time and I, I don't have a tractor, I don't have equipment? Right, yeah. Because you can you can basically do what I do with a lawnmower. As long as you can get a lawnmower in there and some sort of spray mechanism, I, I use a backpack prayer, sprayer on some of my plots that are way back in the woods. I mean, little less than quarter acre plots, basically just a shooting lane that I'm planting. And I'm just t- taking Roundup in there and I'm just eliminating the green growth that is happening now. And then I'm cutting it as close as I can to the soil. And then I'm spreading the seed so that I, I've got the seed as close as the ground as I can, and you get a good soaking rain on that dying vegetation. It just acts as a natural fertilizer, and the seeds come up. S- sucks it into the ground. Yep. Um, when when are you doing Are you doing this in spring, or are you doing it uh, like in late summer? I, if I'm planting a brassica plot, that's going to be in the late summer. Typically, I, I target like July 25th, where we're at in Minnesota. It'll depend on uh, where you're at. You know, based on your frost, your average first frost, you want to give it at least six to eight weeks of growth before the frost will hit on those brassicas. So that's what I'm I'm doing is late summer. So I'll, I'll let that plot uh, green up in the springtime, and then I'll hit it with a herbicide, basically just round up to kill the green growth that's coming up, and then I'll uh, come back and mow it and do another herbicide application in July, and that's when I'm planting. So you're using glyphosate. We got to actually have a disclaimer on that. Uh, tell me, that stuff is nasty if you get it on your skin, right? I mean, like, uh, is it, what precautions do you take? I mean, I, I wear like a face mask, and I wear like my sunglasses, and I'm wearing rubber gloves. So and not doing it when it's windy. And not doing it when it's when, it, when it's windy. Yep. And if you're doing that with a backpack spray, you're just going along pretty close to the ground, spraying that stuff. Yep. Yeah. You don't want it to drift off of what you're trying to target. You don't want to inhale it, um, but. It's not that bad. I mean, do normal safety precautions, washing your hands and, you know, not trying to breathe it in. You know, you think about the wind direction. You want the, the drift to be away from you as you're spraying. So I've used it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing for killing weeds, I'll tell you that. I mean, yep. I've never actually thought about what you did because I've always, I've always done, uh, well, we got to till this, and then I would drag it in yep. with like a chain link fence piece behind uh, either a lawnmower or something like that to try to get that seed down there. Yep. I wanted to talk about that for a second. Um, this has kind of annoys me because no one's ever given me a straight answer, so I'm, I'm leaning this all on you right now. You're <laughs> going to come up with the be-all, end-all answer. Guys who are really good at food plots, I know lots of them. They're awesome guys. They're awesome hunters. But they say, well, you know, you have to have a properly prepared seed bed. Well, what the hell is that? What is a pro- properly prepared seed bed? So it's, it's getting the 
soil as even as you can so that when you put the seed on the soil, it's going to have the best chance of germinating. So I've seen like the farmer's example of a perfectly prepared seedbed. It looks like a what would like a parking lot. It is it is black. There is not a single weed competition. It it's just perfectly even. I mean, the the tillage equipment that they have to make that costs a lot of money right. and it takes really big equipment. And but that, I want to do that, that with that's like not, a that's not applicable for the guy doing it in, in a very small area. That's what I'm so, saying. Is, so the guy who wants to do it in a small area, he's got a little compact tractor, hopefully, or a lawnmower or something. Um, what I know is, because one of my buddies has done mine for me, is he tills it, but then he comes in with one of those cultipackers and it presses the soil down. Yeah. What is that? What is that just helping making it flatter? Yeah, because it, after you till, you're basically fluffing up the soil, and if you try to just put seeds on that and then then hit a call to pack around them, you're you're pressing it down too much. Like the seeds are going to bury themselves too hard. Um, so you want to get that seed no more, especially the smaller seeds, no more than a half an inch down below the soil surface. So you can fluff it up with tillage, run a coulter packer over it, and that keeps it from, from being too fluffy, and then you put your seed out and then put a coulter packer on it again just to press it in lightly because you don't want to go too deep with it. What about if you, because that's the point you make, it's like, okay, so you, what about if you just till it and plant it? That fluffy soil, it, is it just going to suck that seed down too Yeah, far? you're going to have an uneven germination because of the unevenness of the ground and the the soil is not evenly um, distributed across the plane that you want the plant to grow from. So like some of the seeds are going to be on the peak of a of a hill, some of them are going to be in a valley, and they're, they're going to be at odd layers in terms of the evenness of the topography of the plot. So you can do it, and, and some will grow, but it will be better if you get a straight, even soil. Per- perfect, an- <laughs> perfect answer right there. It only took me like, how many years have we been doing this podcast? Since 2012. We finally, we finally got a good one. So basically what you want is you want a flat, firm seed bed. Right. Is what you're saying. Yep. And then, um, especially those seeds, because now if you look at clover or you look at breast, it's just, it looks like a, it's smaller than a sesame seed on your hamburger bun. I mean, they're they're so tiny. Mm -hmm. And when you say, I mean, basically that seed does not need much soil contact. Right. I mean, you think about evolutionary history of that seed. It wasn't, it wasn't placed far into the soil in its lifetime. You know, it's, it's not going to do well if you put it an inch down. It naturally seeds grow by just falling on the soil. Right. So now those are the smaller seeds. What about the bigger seeds? The bigger seeds, they do better when you get them a little bit farther into the soil, and th- and that those are like not designed to be grown as easily if you broadcast that seed. Right. So the bigger seeds, like we have a a blend called Amazing Grains, and it's like your winter wheat, it's forage oats, there's cereal rye, and there's Austrian winter peas. Those are all big seeds. You want to get that at least a half inch to an inch down into the soil to, if you want to get a good stand of that. Now, how do you do that? So for that, I actually have a drag that I use. Um, so I'll take and uh, after I've eliminated all of the green growth, then I'll take my drag and I'll basically just run over it several times. So I'm fluffing it up and then I put the seed out and then I drag it again. So I'm dragging that soil on top of the seeds after I've planted it. So you but, could do that with like a, I always use this example, but because what I had, I just had a piece of chain link fence. 
Yep. That was maybe like, I don't know, it was like maybe six or seven feet wide by six to ten feet long. And just dragging that behind uh, something, and that would that would work for those bigger seats. Yep. And then also, uh, I do have access to a grain drill. So Mark has property up in uh, just north of Worthington, and we've got like a, it's a Van Brunt from like 1960, but it's got a setting on there for, we just set it for peas, because that's like the biggest seed that we have in that blend just set it for peas and then it it puts it at the right depth and you've got the right seed rate coming down in it and then we just take that it's basically just like a no-till drill but it's designed for use in fields that have been tilled and it just runs right behind the tractor and places the seed down well i was gonna say now that's the ultimate the ultimate is is having that or having a buddy that have it and to me that's getting like i always say okay this is getting too complicated i don't have that i don't have the access to it i don't know how to use it um, I've seen people use it. I've seen people. Steve Bartella grows f- phenomenal food plots. He, he's got the time and you know the the means to do it as far as the mm-hmm. equi- the equipment. But I could still do that if if I'm a guy that wants to do that. Like plant, um, we we hear about it all the time, like oats and peas and things like that. I sh- I don't have to be scared off by that. I can do it with just dra- dragging that right, dragging that in. Yep, you just might need to drag it. Uh, a couple times just to get a little bit deeper into the soil. And then running it over with the tractor tires isn't hurting it at all. It's actually right. helping it. Yep. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And do you do you plant um, – now, I do it for my garden. I just got my garden in here. Um, well, the last of it was two days ago, but I've got, I've got all sorts of stuff. I've got squash and peppers and all this stuff, but I always plan – now, this is – I'm not talking seeds. Um, I d- actually did with my I, I green beans. I've got – four rows of green beans because i love green beans i plan that always to plant before rain i always do that um do you do that with these plots as well or do you just get them in there and just wait until it rains i mean if if i had the if i'm looking at the forecast and there's no rain in the forecast at all i'm gonna wait until the point of no return you know when when you're getting too close to the end of the growing season you just got to put it in the ground and pray but i would rather plant late with moisture than early without moisture in the fall and then the opposite in the springtime so if if you're lacking moisture right away i would i would um wait and plant in the fall because you're going to have a burned out plot especially with clover it's not going to get a good establishment if there's no rain the early part of the growing season that's when clover does the best deer talk now is brought to you by with more than 70 years of experience in the animal health and nutrition industries Analogics Outdoors brings its unique expertise to the science of deer feed and attractants. For more information, visit analogics.com. Okay, um, so I don't know when we're dropping this uh, this podcast because we've done we've done two with Tim. But um, if we if you if this is too late, this next question is it's per, um, these are mostly generated on my brain. Like, okay, the, I'm, I'm out, this is a question I wanted to ask. Yeah. Um, so you might have to bookmark this and come back to it if it's if it's too late in the season for you. But like right now, when we're recording this, it is May what Ian? It's May tenth uh, today. May tenth. I haven't. Uh, so I have a plot that's about a quarter acre. I planted it the last three years, and I've always waited until the end of July. And actually, last year I waited until the first week of August because I plant it with brassicas, and the deer absolutely destroy it. It's gone by bow season. Our bow season comes in like third week of september mm-hmm. um does it behoove me to plant something now in mid-may or is it too late and if i do something if i have a plot 
that is getting hammered by deer in fall, um, uh, what what is the process? What is the process that you would recommend? Like something that you could either plant like now in May, and you're going to have May, June, July, August, and then till it up and replant it in fall. What would you suggest in a situation like that? So there's two options uh, from Analogics that would be helpful in this situation. One would be called Fixin' Clover. It's an annual clover, and it has a lot of nitrogen-fixing uh, plants in it. So I was going to ask about it's, that. There's, there's Balanza clover in there. There's uh, Uchi arrowhead, or uh, arrowleaf clover, excuse me, and then there's crimson clover in there. So it's basically a plot placeholder that is putting nitrogen into that plot throughout the early part of the growing season. And then you come in there, uh, you can spray it. You could plant right into the dead uh, fixing clover, or you could till it. Either way. You could spray it, till it, or plant right into it, is what you're saying? Yeah, but but if you plant into it, you got to make sure you kill off the fixing clover because okay. that's going to compete with the brassicas just in terms of surface area and plant, like leaf matter, um, because it's, you're going to have a basically a clover stand that you're going to eliminate. So uh, you can till it, and basically it just turns into green fertilizer, and as it decays, it's putting nitrogen into the brassica, brassica plot. Um, the other option would be to plant what we call summer crush, and that's basically another summer placeholder, but it's a it's a bigger broadleaf um, mix of forbs. So there's things like forage peas in there. There's mung beans. There's conventional soybeans. There's sunflowers in there. So there's buckwheat. Um, that that's a good soil conditioner as well. A lot of uh, nitrogen happening with that plot. So that that could be planted, you know, as late as the early part of July if you're using it just as a placeholder. And it's going to get demolished. But I mean that's that's okay because you're going to put another crop after it. You know the deer are going to hammer it, especially on a quarter acre. But it's basically better than a weed that might not be eaten. That might not be eaten, and it's going to take over the plot. Actually, yep. I set you up on that question because I wanted to talk about nitrogen because I was I actually kind of thinking in those terms. I was thinking of like either like rye or uh, uh, buckwheat because I've planted that before, and buckwheat yep. came in great, and deer ate it. And I was like, man, this is awesome. And by the time it got to, like, August, it was all flowered out and nothing was... Yep, nothing loses palatability later in the... But that's putting that back into the soil. So what I wanted to, uh, to turn that into is, I think the... I know, like I said, I'm speaking to guys... <clears throat> there's guys with lots of experience who who got this stuff down, but I'm speaking to guys who are like me who... You don't have a lot of time to do this stuff. You've got a weekend or something like that, and you want to get it done, and... The biggest frustration that I see, especially with deer and deer hunting uh, viewers and readers, is that their intentions are good. They get out there. They read all this stuff. They've got a very good handle on it. And then you got food plot failure or something like that, or the soil isn't right. Um, and then I think what happens is maybe they gloss over that fact. So let's talk about I know everybody says, get your soil tested, get your soil. Yeah, we do that. And it's like, okay, it's um, whatever, 5.7, what mine was last year. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to put this much lime in. And I went on and ran all up this lime. I don't know if it did anything. Um, what can what can the, the average person do um, or can they do other things um, other than maybe plant a cover crop like that to help improve that soil condition? So the reason that food plots fail a lot of the time is – the lack of fertility of the soil, and then also the lack of sunlight. That's another big thing. I see guys trying to plant under the canopy in a in a woods because that's where their stand is. They're trying to bring the deer to their stand. Well, they would be better off, you know, clearing some trees and getting more sunlight down to get 
the the plants to grow but i mean plants need the nutrients to thrive you can you can get them to germinate but they're going to not do as well if they don't have the fertility so i mean it it's basically you get what you put into it you know and it sucks because you don't have time it's a lot of work but, but if you don't have time you can't grow a good plot i mean that right that, i mean you you need to do some work to have a, a successful plot that's that's the there's no like magic dust that I've got this seed and that's gonna p- grow no matter what I do. Like you have to do something. <laughs> you know what's fu- what's funny about that is it brings us right back to my vegetable analogy, because it's like I know that you know because it's like I I want to grow great tomatoes and Charlie Alshimer rest his soul he always told me he said that tomato is no it, it, the the only it's as good as that soil is. Yep. And he goes you might he goes okay so you might do a lot and you might um. You might grow a great tomato, but it, he said the nutrients are only going to be in there as if you got them in the soil. So, um, and the thing that I learned, I've been doing this for the the whole vegetable thing for going on 25 plus years, is that when I first did it, went out into the yard with a, with a walk. First, it was the forward tillers. Mm-hmm. Then I, I splurged and I got one of those nice uh, rear tine tillers. It was a craftsman. It was awesome. Yep. Uh, it was, and I would like till up the, the front yard I'm like yeah that looks good and plant it and nothing grew because it was probably a lawn forever right and then i'm like well actually we got to put some compost in there we've got to put some uh i actually would put rotted chicken manure in there and then mm-hmm. once i did that holy crap i was i was no pun intended i was growing great tomatoes and great everything yep. and it's kind of the same thing with food plots and the, the point that you make is in the woods i see this a lot uh, the, okay, let me digress here. The the funniest one was uh, I asked I I used to do get asked a lot and don't ask me because I don't have time. Is people w- around here would say, "Hey, could you come look at my property and tell me you what?" And I, I'd look at it. I was like, "You have no food. You know, you, you you've got some great woods, but it's like I said we were talking about before. It's like you've got all these invasives. You got locust and you've got bush honeysuckle and you got buckthorn, uh, buckthorn, tons of it. <laughs> and it's like, well, I I got I got food plots. And I look and it's like uh. No offense, but you, you've got like basically an old lo- a logging pad, like it was maybe like a logging road, mm-hmm. and they got somehow got equipment in there. There's rocks like crazy around here, um, and they planted some clover. I'm like, that's like a Snickers bar. I mean, like, no offense, but you've got a fifty yard long wide by five yard long, or fifty long, fifty yards long by five yards wide food plot. It, it's not doing too much, right? And um, Back to my point was like when you said um, in the woods with no sunlight and now you're dealing probably with acidic soil mm-hmm. in a lot of places that in, I know a lot of the guys in the south, they have pine forests. Right. Uh, I think it's longleaf pine that, that they have down there. Yeah. Um, and and they, loblolly. Loblolly. Yep. And, but they're planting stuff and they do get stuff to grow, but you kind of got to think out of the side of the box, especially if you're trying to establish food pots. Let's face it. Most guys are doing it for hunting purposes. Um, but if you have that luxury of having some destination sources all the better right all the better to yeah do. and a lot of people ask me uh you know what should i plant i like to have diversity you know give them a little perennial give them an annual may put a clover and then put a probrasca you know right next to each other because then you've got the the perennial kind of t- taking more of the browse pressure and then you've got the brassica that's good for the later season you know high carbohydrate high high energy so it never hurts to have diversity out there and what about am- amending the soil? Um, like, what 
what are the, the minimum things people should be looking at? So the soil sample obviously tells you, people always ask like, well, what, what do I need to um, fertilize with? And it, it depends on what your soil has in it. So if you don't have time to do the soil sample, you know, like I used to just go out on a weekend and I wouldn't think of doing a soil sample until the day I'm planting the plot. Like, well, I'm not going to get those results back for two weeks. Like, what do, what do I do this weekend? <laughs> well, I guess we'll just plant it and see what happens. Right. But if you have time to get the soil sample, do it because it's going to tell you exactly what you need. If you don't do a soil sample, then you're just basically guessing. And if, if, if you look at the soil around and if, if there's growing, like if there's really tall corn around it, you know that's probably good soil. But if they're only planting winter wheat or hardly anything around you, that might not be the greatest indication of the soil in that area. So you, you can just look at your soil like, do I have high fertility, medium fertility, and low fertility? If you think you have low fertility, then you just need to put fertilizer on it, just a random whatever you can get from the hardware store, a 10, 10, 10, triple 13, and you're going to put, you know, 200 pounds on a quarter acre, and that'll be better than doing nothing. But I can't tell you if that's going to be exactly what your plot needs without the soil sample. You're just blindly putting out fertilizer. Right. So And it, and it costs money. So if you have unlimited funds, I mean, put about, put out... 500 pounds of triple 13 you're going to lose some of it to evaporation and you know lost through leaching but it's not going to hurt anything is your recommendation just an annual process of this or do you need to actually follow up yeah you need to follow up because I mean, somebody asked me they had a, a food plot in a pine stand and their ph was low and they asked me um next year i'll be okay because i i don't have to worry because I limed it. And I said, well, did you remove the pines? <laughs> the pines are still there. So the reason it was acidic is still there. So you're just constantly, you know, going through that loop of raising pH, getting it better for that year's growing season. And then it's going to slowly dip back down to the area around it and then just do it all over again. What about these, uh, what do you call them, foliar uh, fertilizers? It's something we are researching highly on our test plots. There is some merit to it. I will say that. Uh, there, there are some claims in the industry that I don't think should be on those bottles. I'll be straight up with it. We yep. didn't see, like, we tested some of the other competitor products and didn't see the results like you would think. So, so what I'm talking about there is, uh, if you're not familiar with that, is it's a, it's a liquid mm -hmm. fertilizer that you yep. spray on the plants while they're growing. Right. Um, but what you're saying is probably the the best way to go about it is to just get regular, either pelletized, or you know those applications. Yep. Um, and what about lime? Um, is there a big? I've always used the pelleted stuff because it's easier. Um, somebody told me you should be using the powder stuff. I was like, I have no way of getting that on on there. What are the differences there? It's basically it comes down to the uh, type of lime that that you're putting out. Uh, Kip Adams from QDM, well, it's not QDM, it's, no, it's NDA. Yep, he wrote a good article about the different types of lime, and they're all rated on the bag on the type of screening that they can go through and the ability to change the pH. So it, it has to say somewhere on the bag what it's capable of. So you just got to look at the, the bag and know, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with a low pH, the, the pelletized lime, it's not, it's not all the same. You know, the pelletized lime could even be a lower form of lime, but it has to have that rating on it. And you're so really gonna not going to know if you made a hill of difference until what, next year? Until the following 
until you take another yeah. t soil test but next year. It depends on what kind of lime you use. If if you're um, using a high quality fine lime, that's gonna that's gonna get into the soil quicker than a low quality pelletized lime. That's gonna that's gonna be more of a long soak into the soil. And and also if you if you till it in, it's gonna be more fast acting than if you just uh, broadcast it on top. This episode is also brought to you by Full Range Mounting Systems. These mounting systems are a great way to manage all of your mounts in a stylish and organized manner. We are using their pedestal mount here on the podcast set for two shoulder mounts, and it looks just awesome. Be sure to check out their mounting systems at fullrangesystems.com, and for 15% off your order, use code DTN. Okay, so let's switch gears here then. Kind of, it's very close, but let's talk about minerals. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. We've actually had some people uh, in uh, the scientific realm over the years who have said putting out minerals for deer is BS. Um, what's your response to that? I think they haven't looked at the research that we have done in terms of gauging an animal's nutritional status via their liver. And what we do at Analogics is we'll take free-ranging deer and we harvest them and we get about a fist-sized sample of the liver and we analyze the micro-mineral content. Basically, you're just looking at the last six weeks of what that deer's diet had in it and what they were able to consume and have in their system at the time. So if you want an early season sample, kill your deer early in the season. If you want a late season sample, kill it in the late season. But we have yet to find a deer, no matter where it is, even on the most highly managed properties where you know they're growing 200s every year, that isn't missing at least one thing. I mean, even where they're being supplementally fed, we, we haven't reached the peak of what could happen as far as nutrition, especially in free range, because they're still living in the wild and they have stressors, like you're talking about social stress. They, they just aren't getting enough of what they need. And here's another thing. The book for what deer need is not written. We're basically using data from sheep tables in the National Research Council because they are similar sized animals. There hasn't been a long enough study done on whitetails specifically to know, you know, they need 500 ppm copper in this amount of time. And the, the, the study would take a long time. It would take a lot of money, take a lot of resources. Nobody just has taken that time to do that yet. So we're using sheep tables to know uh, it's got to be close to this. And, and we're we're testing the free-range deer, but we have yet to find the perfect animal that has, has it all. They're, they're usually missing one of four microminerals. That's copper, manganese, zinc, and selenium. I just wrote that down, I wrote so, that down before I came in here. So those are the four things that we have really tried to um, focus on with our granule mineral. Obviously, calcium and phosphorus are important because you grind up antler. That's number one and two ingredients. But every deer that we've tested, free-range, they're not missing calcium and phosphorus. They're getting enough of that but they're missing the micros. So we're basically, you think about the limiting resource across the landscape, we're just filling the bottom bucket, bo bottom hole in the bucket so that they can express their antler growth in whatever their genetics have in, in what, store. So. What differences have you seen in deer that you've tested in like say, just meticulously managed properties that are, that are putting out these supplements versus like maybe a Northwoods situation where you're, you're dealing with deer that are living on vast, dead seas of public land it's I, I can basically tell if a deer's been supplemented looking at the liver because they're usually only missing one thing and it's right 
right next to the reference interval. So like, I think copper, the reference interval is like 20 to 150 ppm. They'd be at like 19. You know, they're just almost right there. But then you look at a deer that I know is unsupplemented, might be from northern Minnesota, you know, living off of pine boughs, and he's missing seven different things. Wow. You know, he's got really low copper. Selenium barely even shows up. You know, it's like their their soil is so void of those minerals that they're they're expressing what is available to them. And it shows, uh, obviously, in uh, antler development. In, like, you look at a place like uh, an example that I would probably put out would be, like, the UP of Michigan. Um, you see deer up there, like John Eberhardt has talked about it all the time. He said if you can kill, actually in Michigan in general, you can kill a 100-inch buck in Michigan, you're doing well. And in, like in the UP, now I know a lot of this could be genetic, but a lot of those places you've got, you know, two- to three-year-old bucks, no brow tines, um, very, very thin antlers. Yep. And I would, I would just guess that um, the mineral uh, acquisition probably just isn't there. Right, yeah. That's exactly it. And you would think it's more genetics, but it's more nutrition. They cannot get as much nutrition in those areas because of the soil that's there. And it's not like the button bush is is any better in Michigan as it is along the river in Buffalo County. It's that they can grow more button bushes and brambles and raspberries per square foot than they can in Michigan. So the soil is helping there be more plants available more plants, but it kind of goes to my tomato analogy, is that you might actually have the same plants, but that plant isn't bringing up the same amount of mineral, right? Right. Yeah. So it's it's a function of the plant is basically just a mineral transfer vesicle that's helping it get into their system. So if if you've got good plants, then you've got good nutrition. Do you guys not find this to. absolutely fascinating? I, I actually find I could talk about this for all day because I find this stuff so fascinating about just deer biology in general how it works and i i always kind of go down these rabbit holes it's like why is a deer's liver blood opaque as opposed to you know maroon colored as opposed to red and i know you could probably get into the whole mineralization right and it probably has a lot to do with it okay i digress there let's now i'm going to butcher the I, i've i've edited articles with this word in it a lot chelation 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 yep tell us about okay we're talking about minerals and I pronounced it wrong. Tell What is chelation in minerals and how does it work? Chelation is basically the process of taking a mineral, which the deer need, and attaching it to a protein. That protein is more readily absorbed through the gut wall so that they can actually utilize the mineral. The omasum? The abomasum. Abomasum. Yep. I was close. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Yep. So mm. they're, uh, they're basically ingesting the mineral and because we put it on a protein, which is a chelation process, it's absorbed 70% better than a pure mineral would be. So a pure mineral, you know, just thinking like calcium, like they'll, they'll ingest it, but most of it's going out the back end because it didn't get absorbed into the gut. So what we're talking about with the chelation process is, is getting the minerals to the animal. It's basically targeted biology so that it gets to the to the correct point of the digestive system and some of it needs to go even further like into the intestines so in that case we're like coating the mineral and then it's it's getting absorbed in the intestines because we have to get full passage and that's where we get better utilization out of those see we we're just so, talking about we we're just talking about this the other way we we're talking about the science of rumination mm -hmm. and we're talking about the different chambers of the stomach um, so what you guys are doing 
with Analogics is you with the, some of these products that you're making is you're actually taking a protein, somehow binding it with the mineral mm -hmm. to help, and that's what you guys say—the science of deer. Right. That's I think it's your slogan, isn't it? Um, basically, um, getting not only because what I my frustration was back in the day, and I'm not po I'm not pointing out anybody, but I get some mineral from somebody, and I was using it in a state where it was legal. Um, that that um, you put it out, it just sit there and it would, but wash away. Nothing ate it mm -hmm. because that they probably it wasn't palatable right and, uh, and it might have been uh you know just a pure mineral that might not have had enough salt in it so a lot of people talk bad about salt being in a mineral but you need some to drive intake so there's a balance between intake and attractiveness and salt content so i mean a lot of the market out there is is pretty high salt content which is a good attractant but it doesn't do much beyond attraction so what we have really done a good job of marrying is the science of the minerals and the attraction part of it so it's, it's got to be really attractive like you're saying if they don't eat it they don't it doesn't good. do any good it doesn't do any good okay so let's talk um let's try to bring this home let's talk about what are some of the do's and don'ts then i know what they are but um with with mineral usage how, how to use it how to put it out there where to put it out there uh, one thing i do know is you just don't throw it out in the middle of the woods and expect deer to find it right and i I had a, a guy the other day that put uh, a pile of mineral out in a wide open field that was open to the sunlight, and that's another good way of not doing it right. So I try and find spots that are in the shade. Uh, I try and find the best soil that I can in an area. So the darker the soil, the better. If you're in an area that doesn't have any good soil, I would not put a mineral site on the ground. If you've got pure sand all around you, I would put it in a stump, the, the kind that are like spongy, rotten you can basically pull them apart with your hand that's where you'd want to put a mineral site in those areas but i try and find the why, best why is that it's just the deer don't want to ingest sand because so they would actually be eating that rotting bark stuff mm -hmm. yeah to, they to eat the, the actual fiber of the rotting uh wood and it's easier to digest if it, the more rotten it is and it's not bad for the deer they're designed to eat you know lichens and all the different things in the woods so it's not bad for them one bit to ingest the the wood, which is carrying the mineral because you've soaked it in there. What is the so, uh, importance of having water? Water is uh, an essential nutrient. And, I mean, deer get a lot of water from what they eat, especially throughout the growing season. But um, water is an absolutely important thing. A lot of the whitetails range, it's not a limiting resource is the thing. There's, there's water sources all over the place. But the farther west you get, it becomes a limiting resource because the water is not there for them. But so. what my my uh, where I'm going with that is like if you're living in an area like uh, if you're living in an area that doesn't have streams or creeks or ponds and you're putting out this mineral should you be trying to get like a, a little water source a tub or something that you can uh, locate next to the mineral yeah and and the reason that they're targeting the minerals throughout the growing season is because they're trying to offset the the high water intake of the forbs that they're ingesting so they're they're seeking the salt. To, to balance the intake of all the water that they're getting from the lush green vegetation around them. So if you don't have any water sites, um, you know, they make those little uh, dirt ponds. That would be a good, I mean, you can use a plastic swimming pool right. if you want, if you don't care what it looks like. 50-gallon um, barrel and cut yeah, off the bottom of it. Yeah, you can use a stock tank, you yeah. know, from that you get from the farm and supply stores. But um, just getting water 
out there to them is always a good thing. I mean, they, they need cover, they need food, they need water. And so, that, I mean, does that help also with, um, if they're eating off that mineral, they, they basically to get that in their, through their di- digestive system faster? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you think about where uh, the best dirt is along the landscape. It's typically towards creeks, rivers, you know, pond edges, stuff like that. So that's that's another place you can target for a mineral site. But I also think about access and, and egress because you don't want to put it right in the middle of the property where you're going to it every four weeks to refresh the mineral site. You want to maybe tuck it in a corner that you can get in and out of without spooking the deer that are coming to it. So, so having it as like a little oasis that d- doesn't get touched too much. Um, what are the I – kn- I know you guys deal a lot with um, – like probiotics and essential oils, what are, what, are, what are the purposes of those? And tell me a little bit more about that. So the essential oils are what we're using to combat the diseases. And basically it's, it's like taking the chemistry of the uh, plant extract and putting it to work for the immune system. So the immune system helps uh, keep all of those bad you know, diseases and any, any pathogens that the deer might encounter. It basically improves the ability for them to fight those things. Um, the probiotics is, is another Jeez. thing that... Sorry. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> Jeez. Go ahead. The probiotics is another way that we can improve gut health. So gut health is important for absorption of the plants and the feed and the proteins and the minerals that they're ingesting. So probiotics, you get gut health to maximize efficiency, and they're just taking in so much more than they would if they didn't have those probiotics. It's fascinating, so. fascinating stuff. His name is Tim Newman. If you have not learned anything today, I don't know what to tell you because uh, this man is a wealth of knowledge. Analogics Outdoors, Tim, thank you. Where can people go online to find out more of this information about the stuff you guys are working on and, and some of the things you talked about here today. Analogics.com would be the place uh, most people can get any information. I mean, our uh, 1-800 or our 877 number is on there. People can call at any time. Um, we've got, you know, all the social media pages for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Instagram, you name it. TikToks, you're doing TikToks? <laughs> I don't know if we're doing TikToks, to be honest. We should be. We are, but I, I, I let these young guys do that. <laughs> young kids uh, handle yeah, it. I, 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 that's that's kind of passed me by. But thank you very much, Tim. This has been an honor for me because uh, it, it kind of helps geek me out, and I get to learn more uh, from, from your uh, experience. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. So for Tim Newman, I am Dan Schmidt. Thank you for listening to the Deer Talk Now podcast and watching. All we ask you to do is like and subscribe. That's it. Share it with your friends. We bring you brand new ones every Thursday here at Deer Talk Now. We will catch you next week for a brand new episode. Deer Talk Now is brought to you by 10 Point Crossbow Technologies. Whether I'm in a tree stand, ground blind, or spot and stalk hunting, I know the Nitro 505 is up to any challenge. Check one out at a dealer near you or log on to 10pointcrossbows.com for more information.